Hi, I'm Phil Albertelli, and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And this is episode 158, an atheist debate vocab lesson. Before we get started, I have a correction to make. If you've listened to the last few episodes, then you're probably aware that a talented young musician named Heath Souza has been good enough to let me use his music on the show. And by the way, at the end of this episode, I'm going to play another one of his songs in its entirety. Uh, but anyway, it's come to my attention that I've been mispronouncing the name of his band or musical project. It's Divinitus, not Divinitis. Uh, my apologies to Heath. I still wish I had a bad case of Divinitis, though. And perhaps this will count as a correction as well. I somewhat jokingly entitled last week's episode, There's No Such Thing as Atheists. It sounds awkward in retrospect. My grammar might have been a bit off. Perhaps it should have been Atheists Don't Exist or There's No Such Thing as an Atheist, uh, which is actually how Cy Robertson said it, which means at least in this instance, a member of the Duck Dynasty cast actually proved to have better vocab skills than me. But anyway, uh, once again, I'm probably being too analytical. So I guess this might fall into the corrections or clarifications department as well. Friend of the show and longtime listener, Buzzwigs, commented on last week's episode on the uh, Weekend Out Facebook page, and he says... Based on no evidence whatsoever, I think that crisis-induced existential panic, particularly in the kind of case you describe, is more akin to the superstitious impulse than it is to transcendence. Incidentally, Terence McKenna rules, wants me some Soma. <laughs> and I replied, you're a good man, Buzzwigs. I shall add you to the honored list of non-believers who, like myself, are also Terence McKenna fans. Good call regarding the superstitious impulse. I think I was groping for that distinction, but wasn't exactly at the top of my game at the time. And I also sent Buzzwigs a message asking him if it was alright to read his comments on the air. I didn't receive a reply, so I just went ahead and did it anyway. Uh, I don't think Buzzy will mind. And I'd also like to thank Brenda Tackett again for liking the Weekend Out Facebook page. I thanked her last week too, but I did so near the end of the show, and I thought it was more proper to do it at the beginning where more people are likely to hear the shout-out. So thanks again, Brenda. And speaking of likes, and I know this is incredibly petty, but I lost one this week. <laughs> I'd finally reached a uh, very humble milestone of 80 likes on the Weekend Out Facebook page, lost that nice round figure of 80 and fell back down to 79. And I think I get at least 300 listens a week on Podbean alone. It usually ends up ranging in between about 400 to 10,000 hits an episode in the long run. Not sure what's with the disparity in hits there. But I think the show's got about 176,000 hits as a whole, which ain't bad. And that's just uh, Podbean. Um, so if one of you guys <laughs> out of that 300 or so who hasn't liked the Facebook page yet wants to like it and bring me back up to 80, that would be awesome. Um, it's a little embarrassing that this podcast has been going on for almost three years, I think. And I only have 80 likes. I think part of it is probably just due to human nature. You know, people tend to be apathetic about these things, and I'm just as guilty. 
I think it's very rare that I'll go to the Facebook page of a podcast I enjoy listening to. No matter how much I love the show, I just don't feel motivated enough to do it, or I assume that other people will like the page, so I don't have to. Uh, I think another reason why I probably only have 80 likes is that atheism is such a controversial subject that, I mean, it's hard enough to get your regular Facebook friends to like a page anyway, but if, if it's something as controversial as atheism, a lot of people might be wary or turned off. And since non-believers still are something of a minority, e- even though society does seem to be becoming more and more secular, I think atheists are still kind of demonized and your run-of-the-mill lapse Catholic or uh, spiritual but not religious types aren't going to want to like an atheist uh, Facebook page. But anyway, on with the show. So I thought I'd do something a little different this week. I want to take a break from wading waist-deep into controversy and instead give a breakdown of some of the words and terms often thrown around during atheist versus theist debates. If you're a YouTube debate junkie like me, I'm sure you'll already be familiar with many of these terms. But nevertheless, I still hope this episode proves to be edifying. And in full disclosure, it's for me, too. I sometimes tend to mix up or forget some of these, so it will be a refresher course for me as well. And I think I did a very similar episode a a while back, maybe a year ago or so, where I covered a number of terms you often hear during uh, online atheist versus theist debates. But hopefully this episode will be a little more in-depth. So I'll start with ontology, as in an ontological argument. Ontology, and this is according to uh, Merriam-Webster's, is a branch of metaphysics concerned with the nature and relations of being, a particular theory about the nature of being or the kinds of things that have existence. And Wikipedia defines an ontological argument as a philosophical argument for the existence of God that uses ontology. Many arguments fall under the category of the ontological, and they tend to involve arguments about the state of being or existing. More specifically, ontological arguments tend to start with an a priori theory about the organization of the universe. If that organizational structure is true, the argument will provide reason why God must exist. And while I'm at it, I might as well define a priori as well. Uh, And this is from Wikipedia. A priori and a posteriori. The Latin phrases a priori from the earlier and a posteriori from the latter are philosophical terms of art popularized by Immanuel Kant's critique of pure reason. They are used with respect to reasoning, epistemology, to distinguish necessary conclusions from the first premises, i.e. what must come before sense observation, from conclusions based on sense observation which must follow it, thus the two kinds of knowledge, justification or argument, may be glossed. A priori knowledge or justification is independent of experience as with math, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Tautologies, all bachelors are unmarried, and deduction from pure reason, ontological proofs. A posteriori knowledge or justification is dependent on experience or empirical evidence, as with most aspects of science, evolution, and personal knowledge. But back to ontology. The first ontological argument in the Western Christian tradition was proposed by Anselm of Canterbury in his 1078 work, Proslogion. 
so I think it's pronounced, and some define God as that than which nothing greater can be conceived, and argue that this being must exist in the mind, even in the mind of the person who denies the existence of God. He suggests that if the greatest possible being exists in the mind, it must also exist in reality. If it only exists in the mind, then an even greater being must be possible, one which exists both in the mind and in reality. Therefore, the greatest possible being must exist in reality. 17th century French philosopher René Descartes deployed a similar argument. Descartes published several variations of his argument, one of which centered on the idea that God's existence is immediately inferable from a clear and distinct idea of a supremely perfect being. In the early 18th century, Gottfried Leibniz augmented Descartes' idea in an attempt to prove that a supremely perfect being is a coherent concept. And I actually think that argument is somewhat fallacious or flawed. Hobbits exist in the mind. It doesn't mean they exist in reality. And hobbits exist only in the mind, but there aren't any supreme hobbits in reality because so. And it kind of reminds me of last week's episode in a way where I was talking about the transcendent and the other and how... All of us, or most of us, have probably had these moments where where we feel like we're plugged into something greater, a sense of oneness, a sense that we're in the presence of the divine or something like that. But that in itself isn't proof of a higher power. It's proof of a certain psychological uh, or psycho-emotional state, but it's not empirical evidence uh, for, for God. And maybe a philosopher might argue that since one might instinctively feel at times as if they're in the presence of God, then God must exist. You know, and I almost feel like that's kind of what that argument is saying. If the idea of God exists in the mind, uh, then God must exist in reality. But I I don't think that's so at all. As I said, uh, this feeling that we're in the presence of the other or something like that um, could be nothing more than the product of some neurological uh, phenomenon. And we know that we can dream up all sorts of fanciful things that don't exist in reality. It doesn't mean they exist. And this one was just alluded to, and it's epistemology. And Merriam-Webster's defines epistemology as the study or a theory of the nature and grounds of knowledge, especially with reference to its limits and validity. And Wikipedia says epistemology from the Greek Episteme, I think, I hope I'm not butchering that, meaning knowledge, understanding, and logos, meaning study of, is a term first used by the Scottish philosopher James Frederick Ferrier to describe the branch of philosophy concerned with the nature and scope of knowledge. It is also referred to as theory of knowledge. Put concisely, it is the study of knowledge and justified belief. It questions what knowledge is and how it can be acquired, and the extent to which knowledge pertinent to any given subject or entity can be acquired. Much of the debate in this field has focused on the philosophical analysis of the nature of knowledge and how it relates to connected notions such as truth, belief, and justification. The term was probably first introduced in Ferrier's Institutes of Metaphysic, the theory of knowing and being, in 1854. And as you can probably imagine, epistemology is important when debating the existence of God because it's the study of how do we know what we know? 
and what are the limits of knowledge, etc. So epistemological arguments can be wielded by both skeptics and theists uh, to try to prove or disprove the existence of God and how we can or can't know whether or not God ultimately exists. So next up is tautology, T-A-U-T-O-L-O-G-Y. And I have to embarrassingly admit that this is one I've heard thrown around a lot. I think Hitch used to like to use the word tautology a lot, but I didn't learn what it actually meant until recently. Uh, Merriam-Webster's defines it as a statement in which you repeat a word, idea, etc. in a way that is not necessary. And Wikipedia defines it as, in rhetoric, a tautology from the Greek, whatever that is, but it's the Greek word for the same and the Greek word for word slash idea, is a logical argument constructed in such a way generally by repeating the same concept or assertion using different phrasing or terminology that the proposition as stated is logically irrefutable, while obscuring the lack of evidence or valid reasoning supporting the state supporting the stated conclusion. A rhetorical tautology should not be confused with a tautology in propositional logic. And then this next paragraph gets into a little of what's called begging the question. And uh, so I think this is important too. Rhetorical tautology versus circular reasoning. Circular reasoning differs from tautologies in that circular reasoning restates the premise as the conclusion instead of deriving the conclusion from the premise. This is often conflated with begging the question in which the premise relies on the assumption of the, of the conclusion. A tautology simply states the same thing twice. Rhetorical tautologies typically present themselves as redundancies, only comprising part of a statement. And here's a good example. Circular reasoning. God exists because the Bible says so, and the Bible is God's word. Rhetorical tautology. A tautology is anything that is tautological. So next up is the cosmological argument. And the cosmological argument is so in-depth that I can't just simply read a brief dictionary definition. So I'm going to read from, you guessed it, Wikipedia. In natural theology, a cosmological argument is an argument in which the existence of a unique being generally identified with or referred to as God is deduced or inferred as highly probable from facts or alleged facts concerning causation, change, motion, contingency, or finitude in respect of the universe as a whole or processes within it. It is traditionally known as an argument from universal causation, an argument from first cause, the causal argument or the argument from existence. Whichever term is employed, there are three basic variants of the argument, each with subtle yet important distinctions. The arguments from in causa, causality, in essa, essentially, and in fieri, becoming. The basic premise of all these is the concept of causality and of a first cause. The history of the argument goes back to Aristotle, was developed in Neoplatonism and early Christianity, and later in medieval Islamic theology during the 9th to 12th centuries, and reintroduced to medieval Christian theology in the 13th century. The cosmological argument is closely related to the principle of sufficient reason, as discussed by Gottfried Leibniz and Samuel Clark itself a modern exposition of the claim that nothing comes from nothing, attributed to Parmenides. Contemporary defenders or partial defenders of cosmological arguments include William Lane Craig, Robert Coons, Alexander Pruss, and William L. Rowe. 
And the most famous name out of there, especially for you out there like me who like to watch YouTube debates, is probably William Lane Craig, this kind of infamous Christian apologist. And he's a champion specifically of the uh, Kalam cosmological argument. Let's see. Next, I'll tackle the infamous fine-tuning argument. And this is an argument often employed by uh, Christian apologists. The fine-tuned universe is the proposition that the conditions that allow life in the universe can only occur when certain universal fundamental physical constants lie within a very narrow range, so that if any of several fundamental constants were only slightly different, the universe would be unlikely to be conducive to the establishment and development of matter. Astronomical Astronomical structures, elemental diversity, or life as it is understood. The proposition is discussed among philosophers, scientists, theologians, and proponents and detractors of creationism. Physicist Paul Davies has asserted that there is now broad agreement among physicists and cosmologists that the universe is in several respects fine-tuned for life. However, he continues, the conclusion is not so much that the universe is fine-tuned for life, rather it is fine-tuned for the building blocks and environments that life requires. He also states that anthropic reasoning fails to distinguish between minimally biophilic universes in which life is permitted, but only marginally possible, and optimally biophilic universes in which life flourishes because biogenesis occurs frequently. Among scientists who find the evidence persuasive, a variety of natural explanations have been proposed, such as the anthropic principle, along with multiple universes. George F. R. Ellis states that no possible astronomical observations can ever see those other universes. The arguments are indirect at best, and even if the multiverse exists, it leaves the deep mysteries of nature unexplained. And before I go on, I should probably um, digress briefly to uh, go into the anthropic principle. And this is according to Wikipedia. In astrophysics and cosmology, the anthropic principle from the Greek anthropos, meaning human, is the philosophical consideration that observations of the physical universe must be compatible with the conscious and sapient life that observes it. Some proponents of the anthropic principle reason that it explains why the universe has the age and the fundamental physical constants necessary to accommodate conscious life. As a result, they believe it is unremarkable that the universe's fundamental constants happen to fall within the narrow range thought to be compatible with life. The strong anthropic principle, as explained by John D. Barrow and Frank Tipler, states that this is all the case because the universe is compelled, in some sense, to eventually have conscious and sapient life emerge within it. Some critics of the SAP, strong anthropic principle, argue in favor of weak anthropic principle, similar to the one defined by Brandon Carter, which states that the universe's ostensible fine-tuning is the result of selection bias. Only in a universe capable of eventually supporting life will there be living beings capable of observing and reflecting upon any such fine-tuning. While a universe less compatible with life will go unbeheld, most often such arguments draw upon some notion of the multiverse. For there to be a statistical population of universes to select from, and from which selection bias our observance of only this universe, apparently compatible with life, could occur. And um, they mentioned selection bias briefly there, and that reminds me of how whenever I hear people talk about the fine-tuning argument, and I've even heard uh, staunch atheists like, uh, well, my personal heroes, Hitch, Christopher Hitchens, say that they think the fine-tuning argument is one of the strongest that 
their opponents have. And maybe this is because I'm not a scientist and I don't have any scientific training other than uh, a little bit of college biology and high school (laughs) physical uh, science. Um, So maybe I'm just naive about it and there's, there's something I'm missing. But it almost seems to me that the logical assertion would be that maybe there's some kind of almost, for lack of a better uh, term, Darwinian selection going on here. That if you have a universe that's billions of years old, and you have all this matter, debris, all these chemicals, that eventually there's a good chance that some kind of life will arise that can flourish in the presence of whatever constants happen to have developed over time. And life that can't exist or survive in the presence of those same constants will simply fail to exist or arise. I mean, that makes sense to me, um, but maybe I'm missing something. And then, of course, we have infinite regress. And I'm so familiar with this one, I feel like I probably don't even need to read a uh, online definition. I guess in my own layman's terms, I just say it's, if you try to explain how something came to be by explaining what came before it, you have to keep going backwards ad infinitum, uh, trying to explain how each preceding thing came to be. So, for instance... If you say, uh, how did the universe come to exist? God created the universe. Well, then the non-believer would ask, well, who created God? (laughs) Who created the God that created God? And the best that Christians seem to be able to come up with, and and they'll usually smugly say, well, God always was. You know, It's like, how do you know God always was? Um, Because it's implied in your man-made holy book. That's how you know God always was. It doesn't seem like very strong evidence to me. And I've stated in the past that I think both religious people and scientists are both kind of plagued by infinite regress. And of course, you know, I'm a non-believer. I'm someone who embraces reason and science, but I'm just trying to be intellectually honest. So like the religious person has the problem, as I said, which they usually evade or eschew, of having to try to explain, well, where did God come from when they put forth God as an explanation for the existence of the universe. On the other side of, of uh, of the divide, Scientists have to try to describe how can something come from nothing? What came before the uh, Big Bang? And, uh, of course, famously, Lawrence Krauss, a uh, renowned astrophysicist and author, professor, debater, has has done a lot of work in this field. And I think the name of the book he wrote about uh, his work is, is called A Universe from Nothing. And he's caught in a lot of flack because he tries to describe nothing is actually not being nothing, that actually nothing is something, you know. And what we consider nothing or empty space is actually this kind of bubbling quantum brew. And so, you know, if you took away all the planets, uh, the stars, everything, you'd still be left with this strange quantum, you know, this bubbling, seething quantum brew. And uh, he considers that nothing and says, you know, that's how we can explain that uh, something can actually come from nothing. And Christian apologists and perhaps even some other scientists have kind of accused him of kind of playing word games or semantics with uh, the term nothing. 
And then we could always say, well, where did that bubbling quantum brew come from, you know? Here's another one you guys are probably all familiar with, ad hominem. You know, this is one of the basics. And you'll often hear of people making ad hominem attacks. And uh, Merriam-Webster defines it as appealing to feelings of prejudices rather than intellect, marked by or being an attack on an opponent's character rather than by answer to the contentions made. And it's from New Latin uh, and means to the person. And, you know, it's really funny. Um, I think the next episode I'm going to do is going to be all about high-profile atheist YouTubers, and I'm just going to give my opinions on them. And uh, it's funny, a, a couple of high-profile online atheists, uh, The Amazing Atheist, of course, and there's one I've mentioned on this show before uh, who runs a YouTube channel called Atheism is Unstoppable, and his mascot is a uh, photoshopped kangaroo, and he's, he's also known as Atheist Roo. Well, he's been colliding on YouTube with The Amazing atheist. And it's funny, the amazing atheist, a lot of people, even on the left, find him absolutely vile. Uh, you know, they just think he's this disgusting hu human being who says all this outrageous stuff. But it's funny, if you actually listen to him, and if you go beyond the, the bombast and, you know, the uh, the swearing and everything. He's actually a really bright guy who's fairly progressive and puts forth some really well-reasoned uh, arguments. And I think he's been uh, clashing with Atheist Rue because Atheist Rue is kind of stridently anti-Muslim. Uh, and he's a big fan of Sam Harris, as am I. And just last week I mentioned in passing how even though I agree with some of what Sam Harris says about Islam, he's often viewed as his comments are often viewed as being politically incorrect, and he, it sometimes gets him in trouble. Um, and in fairness to him, you know, I think that this time there you can sometimes say things that are politically incorrect, but are still factually true for the most part, you know. But Atheist Rue is like Sam Harris on steroids when it comes to Islam. He just gives no quarter to Islam. He just goes for the jugular, uh, extremely politically incorrect. And he also says um, some rather controversial stuff when it comes to race, you know, regarding incidents of police abuse and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, so there's a pretty heated ongoing debate there on uh, YouTube. But anyway, the reason why I started talking about these guys is that I think both of them are the type that like to really throw insults at their opponents and just try to cut their opponents off at the knees by using the most over-the-top, insulting language they can think of. And But they'll say, well, that isn't an ad hominem. And actually, they're right, because what both of them will usually do is they'll put forth a fairly well-reasoned argument why the other person is wrong, then they'll top it off with some, you know, wildly offensive pejorative or something like that. And uh, they'll say, hey, it wasn't an ad hominem. I answered uh, their argument or I explained why they're wrong. And in that sense, they're right. And then next, of course, we have ad hoc and post hoc. 
And you know, you'll hear people being accused of making ad hoc or post hoc arguments uh, for the particular end or case at hand without consideration of wider application than post hoc relating to or being the fallacy of arguing from temporal sequence to a causal relation formulated after the fact. And then here's another one that I heard bandied about a lot and kind of just by context clues understood what it meant but didn't look up till recently, and that's the no true Scotsman fallacy. And here's what uh, Wikipedia has to say. No true Scotsman is an informal fallacy, an ad hoc attempt to retain an unreasoned assertion when faced with a counterexample to a universal claim. No Scotsman would do such a thing. Rather than denying the counterexample or rejecting the original universal claim, this fallacy modifies the subject of the assertion to exclude the specific case or others like it by rhetoric, without referring to any specific objective rule. No true Scotsman would do such a thing. And here's uh, some examples. Bradley Dowden explains the fallacy as an ad hoc rescue or a refuted generalization attempt. The following is an example of the fallacy. Person A, no Scotsman puts sugar on his porridge. Person B, but my uncle Angus likes sugar with his porridge. Person A, ah yes, but no true Scotsman puts sugar on his porridge. But I think you guys probably get the point. And as far as the origin of the term goes, it says, uh, the introduction of the term is attributed to British philosopher Antony Flew, who in his 1975 book, Thinking About Thinking, wrote, Imagine Hamish MacDonald, a Scotsman sitting down with his Glasgow Morning Herald and seeing an article about how the Brighton, England, sex maniac strikes again. Hamish is shocked and declares that no Scotsman would do such a thing. The next day, he sits down to read his Glasgow Morning Herald again, and this time finds an article about an Aberdeen, Scotland man whose brutal actions make the Brighton sex maniac seem almost gentlemanly. This fact shows that Hamish was wrong in his opinion, but is he going to admit this? Not likely. This time he says no true Scotsman would do such a thing. And it's interesting, uh, Antony Flew... I have to admit, I'm not that all familiar uh, with his work. I keep meaning to try to read his work or watch some, uh, you know, video footage that's floating around YouTube of him. But I guess what I find intriguing and perplexing about him is he's supposedly a lifelong atheist. I believe he's passed now and who near the end of his life actually said he thought that the evidence, perhaps not to put words in his mouth, for a higher power, I guess, was persuasive enough that he decided to transition from atheist to agnostic. And so he's often held up as an example during debates by uh, Christian apologists like uh, William Lane Craig of kind of atheists who through reason have come to uh, change their minds or whatever. But of course, there's also plenty of atheists who go to the grave as atheists. And it's not like the guy was a boring young Christian. He was an agnostic. So, and I technically consider myself to be an uh, agnostic atheist. So, you know, I, I doubt the existence of a higher power, but I can honestly say I know for sure that one uh, does or doesn't exist. Then let's see, we also have argument ad populum, uh, which is basically kind of self-explanatory. It's the argument that if the majority of people believe something, then it must be right. 
Did I say argument ad populum? It's more correctly argumentum ad populum. In argumentation theory, an argumentum ad populum Latin for appeal to the people is a fallacious argument that concludes that a proposition is true because many or most people believe it. If many believe so, it is so. This type of argument is known by several names, including appeal to the masses, appeal to belief, appeal to the majority, appeal to democracy, appeal to popularity, argument by consensus, consensus fallacy, and so on and so on. Also, Vox Populi. That'd be a good band name. Uh, Examples. Nine out of ten of my constituents oppose the bill, therefore it is a bad idea. Fifty million Elvis fans can't be wrong. Everyone's doing it. In a court of law, the jury vote by majority. Therefore, they will always make the correct decision. Many people buy extended warranties. Therefore, it is wise to buy them. (laughs) That just tempted me to go off on a personal anecdote where uh, I recently bought a new car. Well, new to me. I had been driving a Mitsubishi Galant for about 10 years, and the thing was literally turning to rust. And like I said, I had that car for about a decade. So... I always signed for my own cars since early adulthood, but this was the first time I went completely on my own to pick out and buy a vehicle. And I ended up getting a 2011 (laughs) Kia Soul, uh, and I actually love it. It's probably the best vehicle I've ever owned, at least in my humble opinion. It's bigger than an ordinary car, but smaller than an SUV. It's like just the right size, the steering's really tight, it's easy to manipulate when you're driving. Well, when else would you be manipulating it? It's a car. I really like it, but I totally understand why uh, used car salesmen have the um, reputation they have. I was lured there by some ad for like a brand new Kia Soul 2015 or whatever for like 13000 or 12000 or something like that. Turns out it's like a totally stripped down version with a stick shift or whatever. Then they tried to put me into a brand new Kia Soul without all the options. And every time I'd ask them, uh, well, what's this model cost? They'd keep dodging and evading. And finally they said, well, it's going to be a little bit more than 13,000. This is going to be like 25,000. And I'm like, yeah, can't do it. So I found like a black Kia Soul 2011 that only had like 20,000 miles on it for some reason. Uh, Whoever had it first didn't drive it very often. It was in great shape. Um, This was my first time sitting down with one of the sharks in the finance department. And I was very naive. And I walked out with like 5% interest and um, like a $2,500 extended warranty. And I just felt like such a schmuck, like such a dupe. Um, but anyway, I ended up refinancing the car with AAA, got the the interest down to two point something. Then I it was so awkward and kind of painful, but I went back to the dealership, went back to the same shark and told them I didn't want the warranty, you know? And, uh... I had to fight with him about it, and it was one of the most crappy, awkward situations I've ever been in in my life. You know, they work on commission, so this guy was on that thing like a dog on a bone. He did not want me to uh, return that um, warranty, but I did. So why the heck did I just go off on that? I guess it wouldn't be an episode of The Week and Dealt with at least one personal anecdote. 
but safe to say that'll be the last time that happens to me. From now on, whenever I go to buy a new car, <clears throat> you know, I'll be a, a little more experienced and uh, toughened up. <laughs> and I'll know to watch out for the extended warranties. Um, but anyway, back to the show. You guys probably don't want to hear that crap. Unless you've gone through a similar thing, then maybe it'll be cathartic for you to hear about someone else's uh, experience. Then, of course, we have the argument from incredulity. And I think this is one I've heard William Lane Craig use a lot. And William Lane Craig is one of those people who doesn't take a wishy-washy, figurative approach to uh, New Testament texts. He believes that the Gospels, or at least he claims to believe that the Gospels were eyewitness accounts. And unlike many biblical scholars, he thinks they can be looked at as a source of almost journalistic accuracy or something like that. And I think these examples I'm about to mention could technically qualify as arguments from embarrassment as well. But he'll say that women discovering Jesus' empty tomb, because of the low social status of women in the day, it would be inconceivable for the... uh, gospel writers to depict women uh, discovering Jesus's tomb and, f- and for him to appear to women first than, um, than men or, or his own disciples or whatever. And so he, he says, you know, this would have been very embarrassing. So the fact that they left it in must mean that it's true. And I mean, it's interesting food for thought. And I think people like Robert M. Price say that, uh, you know, people are kind of in the mythicist camp, that women finding the empty tomb might be another theme picked up from other dying and rising uh, god or or savior myths or or things like that. Uh, I'm not sure about that. But I think that's an example of the argument from incredulity and the uh, argument from embarrassment. And I guess you could kind of, uh, I think Christian apologists might also use the crucifixion itself as um, an example of that kind of argument, where the Jews were expecting a Davidic Messiah, you know, some kind of warrior king or something like that. So the idea of a Messiah being flogged and beaten by... uh, the Romans um, being humiliated and nailed to a cross, that that was kind of inconceivable. And so that must mean that the story's true, too, or something like that. And who knows? There's so much to sort out. Um, I'm, I'm not sure where I stand on the historicity of Jesus. There's some people who are strongly in the mythicist camp, like uh, Carrier. Uh, and, and maybe um, I think Robert M. Price leans that way, too. Even myself in the past on the show in the early days, I I used to say that maybe Jesus was a kind of composite character that I think as Reza Aslan puts it in his book Zealot, you know, ancient Palestine was awash in messianic energy. There was a lot of wandering magicians and healers and miracle workers and things like that. Who knows? Maybe Jesus could be some weird composite character or something like that. Or maybe there was a historical Jesus who really was crucified. Lots and lots of people are crucified by the Romans. And maybe he did lead this kind of budding uh, Jewish um, religious movement. And um, 
it ended tragically in a way that his followers didn't see coming. Instead of ending in triumph, it ended with their leader hanging on a cross and then having to try to explain it. Um, who knows? I'm kind of on the fence about the his- historicity of Jesus. It's tough to know. You know, it's not like uh, Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar, where we have monuments they built, uh, statues, uh, all this physical evidence from their own time. Um, it is true that a lot of even historians of the day, they, they weren't concerned with what we would consider journalistic accuracy, at least not in the same way. That's why uh, sometimes the, the tales of Herodotus are often so fanciful when you read them, um, stuff about werewolves and everything else. When you read things like Arians, uh, the campaigns of Alexander, who knows how much of it really happened. I mean, did Alexander really cut the Gordian knot? Or did he ingeniously realized the simple solution was to pull the pin out and the knot would just fall apart? Or did he visit the yoke and the Gordian knot at all? I don't know. I mean, there's things about many historical figures that could be deemed apocryphal or that we're not sure if they really happened or not. But we still have physical evidence for the person's existence. And it's not quite the same with Jesus. And in fairness to Christians, it's probably because... Jesus wasn't a worldly conqueror. He was a first century Jew. And if we believe the gospel accounts, um, not necessarily the miracles, but what little history we can try to glean from them, he was a rather humble figure, basically walking around with the robe on his back. So it's not like he left monuments and statuary and things like that, or coins with his image behind. Um then we have a, a brief bit from uh, Flavius Josephus, known as the Testimonium, um, which m- quickly mentions Jesus. But it's thought that some of the Testimonium could be later interpolation. Uh, it, it could have been edited by Christian scribes to make it appear as stronger evidence, recorded evidence for Jesus than it originally really was. Who knows? And there's a couple other fleeting mentions of uh, Jesus, too, by uh, classical writers. Um, I think uh, I think Pliny might be one of the other writers or uh, historians who supposedly mentions uh, Jesus in passing. I should do a whole show on that. I, I may have in the past. I don't know. I'm up to like 158 episodes now. But I should do a whole show uh, again if I have already in the past on the history on the historicity of Jesus and what recorded evidence there is or isn't from antiquity for his. Uh, for his actual existence. But anyway, I think I covered uh, everything. I'm sure I missed some terms, but I think I I gave you a decent sampling, though. So that being said, I guess I'll call this episode a wrap. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. Please do. I would appreciate it. Uh, Not only does it stroke my ego, but it also spreads word about the show. Um, You can check out the YouTube channel. You can follow the show on Twitter. You can subscribe or rate the show through iTunes. 
You can check out the archives all the way back to episode one on Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Just go there and look for The Week in Doubt. Uh, And while you're there, if you want to support the show monetarily, you can become a patron through Podbean, or you can use the PayPal widget at the bottom of the page. There's that alliteration. And uh, donate as little as 99 cents. And you can also support the show through uh, Patreon.com. Um, as little as a dollar a month. Those car payments aren't going to make themselves. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm joking, kind of. The main thing I'm concerned with, uh, you know, with uh, the monetization of the show is making back at least enough to cover what I put in. You know, it costs me about uh, 19 bucks a month to uh, host the show at uh, Podbean, to host the feed, rather. And I also put a lot of time and effort into it, and I love it. And if someday I could turn this into a day job, that would be a dream come true. Uh, Let me see. Did I leave anything out? You can also listen to the show on Stitcher. Um, With all that being said, thanks for listening, my friends. And until next week. Oh, yeah, and here's Heath's song. I hope you dig it. I know I do. And if you want to hear more of Heath's music... Go to uh, Divinitus Bandcamp or look for the Divinitus Facebook page. And I hope to the God I don't believe in that I'm saying the band name right now. All right. Now, really, goodbye. Until next week. <laughs>